This morning we're going to turn to John chapter 1. This, throughout this month we're looking at the idea of Jesus as a stumbling block and a cornerstone because he is one who causes people to, to wonder and to question and to sometimes be offended because his claims are so astounding that they can offend people. They challenge people and many people don't like that. But then also, but then those who find his claims and find that they are true find that, that in spite of what they might have expected, this is actually true and becomes a foundation or a cornerstone on which they can build their lives. And so we're going to see this again as we look in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Certainly one of the most amazing passages in an amazing book. And so let's listen to God's holy word. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become the children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is God's holy word. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you've given us this beautiful passage to teach us of your Son, Jesus Christ. And now as you've given us your word, and we've heard it audibly, teach us inwardly by your Spirit that we might see his greatness all the more and give you praise and rejoice in all that he has done for us. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Last week, as we looked at John chapter 6, we looked at the scandal that Jesus caused when he said, I am the bread of life, the bread which gives life to the world that has come down from heaven. If someone eats this bread, he'd never hunger or never thirst. And many of the Jewish people were scandalized by that, and they said, how can this be? How can he give us his flesh to eat? And so on. And um, what, what I wanted to draw your attention is that we have the same kind of scandal today. That the idea that Jesus is more than a man, is the one who came down from heaven, and is the one in whom we have the fullness of life and eternal life, the only one in whom we have it, is a scandal today as well. 
And people have a hard time even grasping that. And I think sometimes even in the church we have a hard time grasping it because we may have heard it so many times. And so all you got to do is to take the words of Jesus like we have in John chapter 6 and put them in the mouths of, of any other human being. And you see that this, is absolute, this would be absolutely ludicrous for anybody else to say this. If someone is either lying or they're trying to deceive you or, trying, or they're crazy or they have to be right. There's really only three options because it's not just a good people don't just claim to be the salvation of the world. Good people don't just claim to be God come down from heaven. And so that's an important point for us to make in this day and age. But I was, a few years ago, I was, as I was talking about this, uh, what uh, C.S. Lewis called this trilemma, he's either a liar, lunatic, or Lord, is, is that in the ancient world, that outside of the Jewish, uh, or outside the land of Israel, the idea that Jesus would be God come down from heaven and do miracles and bring life would not have been as strange of an idea. In fact, they thought the gods came down all the time. And if you read Acts chapter 14, you'll see an example of this, where God did a miracle through Paul and Barnabas, and what did they say? The gods have come down to us. Here's Zeus and Hermes, the Greek gods who've come down, and it wasn't like... Well, this is weird. It was kind of like, oh, this is something that happens. That's kind of how they viewed it. And even if you think about the Roman emperors, and you give other examples, they saw them as sort of a manifestation of God or of a God. And so the idea of God being in human form wasn't a strange idea to the, in the ancient world. And the interesting part of that is that when... When um, in the ancient world they heard about all the miracles that Jesus did, they didn't deny that he did that. That wasn't part of the strategy of opposing the Christian faith. Even the ancient writers that are outside of Christianity say he did many miracles, and they just took it for granted that he did those, thereby authenticating that he did what he said he did and what we read. So, but the question was, how are they going to move from this idea of gods becoming men um, and appearing among them to the idea that it is to really see the greatness of who Jesus is as the one true God come into, the, uh, come into this world. And so you can see the, the strategy of the early church, or one strategy, no doubt there's many, but one of the most important we have in this passage that was used by the early Christian, it was almost inevitable that it would be. And John used a particular word. He used a word that is in the Greek, logos, which we have translated as word. It's a word that means word. And so he is the word, he is the logos. So if I say word or logos, um, then you know that I'm talking about the same thing. The Word became flesh. We're talking about the eternal God, the Logos, become flesh. We sing about it. He were the, we sang about it today. You, you were the Word in the beginning. So Jesus is called the Word, the Logos. And so I want us to think about that in a little bit more depth. I want us to understand why 
They chose this word where it came from. And then also I want to show you how he uses that and then the proper response to that truth. So the word logos, that is used here when he says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, was something that was not unknown at all. It was actually an extremely common concept. So what they did is instead of going to their religion to get the concept of Jesus become, being the eternal God to become flesh, they, they used a word that was common in philosophy. And we must remember that in that day, philosophy was much more popular than it is today. So I, I always think when you, whenever you go to a town, you always can see there's little schools of karate or martial arts or jiu-jitsu. That's kind of what it was like in the Roman world. Everywhere you went, you'd have these schools of philosophy. And they might be a, one style of philosophy, just like karate or kung fu or jiu-jitsu. They'd have, we're from Plato, we're Aristotelian, we're Neoplatonist. And it was so different styles of philosophy that they would teach, which was designed to make your life better, to help you understand things. And so people would get involved in these schools. And one of, one of the concepts that was very commonly discussed was the term the Logos. And so, for example, one of these schools that uh, the Apostle Paul discussed with in Acts chapter 17, and probably many other times as well, was the Stoics. And they understood they had this concept of the Logos, and they used it to be the rational principle by which everything exists and which is of the essence of the rational human soul. As far as they were concerned, there is no other God than Logos. That was the true principle by which everything exists. The followers of Plato also used this concept extensively. So when John said, we have the word, then the beginning was the word, the Logos, they would like, yeah, okay. So, but he's fleshing out, no pun intended, what that actually meant. He's saying, I'm going to talk about this thing that you call Logos. And so they, and, and in fact, when he was, it's someone you can imagine beginning to read this gospel that he wrote, as he begins to say, in the beginning was the Logos. It would have been something like where everybody's, ooh, what is he going to say about the Logos? What's he going to say about the word? They would lean in with interest, and we should too. But another thing about the word logos is that it also has a, a reference in the, in the scriptures. So it had a way of speaking not only to the Greek world, but also to the Jewish world. Because if you remember, go back into the, the beginning of Genesis, um, we, we have in the beginning God created the heavens and, world, and earth. And how did he create the heavens and the earth? He spoke. He spoke. He spoke a word. As it says in Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And so this concept of the word is there throughout the Old Testament. Like the word of the Lord came to such and such a person, and then they prophesied. And so for those who are familiar with the Bible, this would have been common. And you can read in the work of Philo the Jew, um, the, his kind of bridging the gap of the, of the Greek world and the Jewish world the Old Testament, and bringing and using extensively this concept of logos. 
So John used a word that was helpful to Jews, but also to gen- Gentiles. And one of the things we should, we should learn from this is that um, we should speak in the language of the people of our day. We shouldn't confine ourselves to the word logos, for example, because if you say Jesus is the logos today, people aren't really going to know what that means. I have to give a lot of explanation to help you understand that. We should be able to take words that are, are being used commonly in the world, and then we can say this will help you understand what we're talking about. And so this word in particular was one that where they did that. They took a word that was common in use, and they filled it with the Christian content as a way of helping people understand and grasp the greatness of who Jesus is. And it, if you had not known um, the, that the beginning of John's gospel, and you had known the word logos and what it meant, and then you knew about Jesus and what he claimed to be and was, it would have been, you would have thought, it's inevitable they're going to use this word, this word to describe him. So what content does John put into this word logos, the word that we're talking about here? So let's consider that more deeply. He did not just simply confine the content to that which it meant to the Greek world or to the Jewish world. He gave it his own content. So first of all, the thing that is striking is that the word is a person. The word is a person. He is not just, the word is not just a thing or a principle. It is a person. He is a he not an it. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He's life. He's doing things. He's becoming man. He's speaking. He's teaching. And so the Word is a person. It's a personal, it's a personal being that we're talking about, not just a rational principle or idea or a, an idea of logic. It is an actual person who was there in the beginning. And that leads us to the second thing. The word is eternal or pre-existent. It says that the word was there in the beginning. When, when everything started, he was already there. He was there before anything was made. How do we know that? Because everything that was made was made by him. If something is made, it came from Jesus. It came from the word. And how do we know then that Jesus is himself not made? Because all things that were made... We're made by him, and he can't make himself. And so therefore, he was already there from all eternity. When Jesus was speaking in John 8, he said to the people, they said, how do you know these things? You're, you're only 30 or 40 years old. And, and he said, before Abraham was, I am. And of course, that is the word that God used to describe himself in Exodus chapter 3, to describe that he is the eternal one. And so Jesus is the Word who is eternal. But the interesting thing is that the Word is also distinct from God. Notice he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So there is a sense in which he's, called, he's seen to be distinct from God. So this is the Word, and then there's the one that is called God. Here, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word, well, we'll see this in a minute, 
So the word is there. He's with God. And yet, they're in the closest relationship. He said in verse 14, He is the glory of the only one Son who came from the Father. In verse 18, No one has seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made Him known. So you have this close relationship. So you can say the Word and God in one sense. But then it also says He is in one sense not distinct from God. Not, I wouldn't say not God, but distinct from God. And then in another sense, he is God. Now, if you think this is, is deep and a little bit hard to grasp, that we're, we're in deep waters here. This is, we are entering into the realm of the greatest mysteries. Because, and that's what John is trying to help us see. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. So he's with one who's called God. And yet, the Word was God. So he's also God, and yet he's distinct from God. So you can see why the Christians um, eventually flesh this out, trying to say, well, what is being said to us by the Lord here, came up and said, and said what we are seeing is what we're going to give a name as the doctrine of the Trinity. That there is one God, clearly in the Bible, but yet he's distinct in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what John is expressing here. He's with God in the sense that he's with God the Father, but he is also, and that doesn't mean he's not God, he is actually God, as it says also in verse 18, that the one who made God known, that is God the Father, is the one and only Son who is himself God. And you can see that throughout the Scriptures, he is actually called God. When, John, when Thomas met him after the resurrection, Thomas said what? My Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute here. I mean, if one of you comes to me and, and says, Wes, my Lord and my God. I'm going to say, what has happened here? Is, you've either gone crazy or, man, I have missed something in my teaching that you have thought that. And besides that, you're completely deluded because I know I'm, <laughs> I'm no Jesus, right? But Thomas comes in and says, my Lord and my God. Anybody would say that and be like, no way. No way. But Jesus is like, yep, yep, you got it. You got it. That's why John, in his letter, says that he is the true God and eternal life. So the, the Son is God. So you see how John's trying to say, how do we think of this? And then we see the Word as creator. That the, that the one who is the Word made everything. Look at verse 3. It says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Every single thing that has been made, every atom, every, every whatever particle is beyond that that we're still trying to figure out, is made by the Word Himself. He put it all together. In all its seemingly almost infinite expanse, they're not really infinite, but just so huge, it's hard to even get our minds around it. He made everything. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. He is the Creator. But then he's also the one who sustains it. He didn't just make it and then walk away. He is the one who sustains it and holds it up. It says, in him was life. So he's the very owner of life. He's the very one who has life in himself. And that's why he can raise the dead and give life to the dead, as he says in John chapter 5. And then it's also why he's able to rise from the dead. He's called the light. He, he is the light that shines in the world. The light shines in the darkness, it says. 
And it says in verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. Everywhere there's light. Everywhere we see goodness. It is coming from and sustained by the word. And so, that is an astonishing description. (laughs) I must say that the man who became flesh, the word became flesh, verse 14, is the word, the true and eternal God, the creator and sustainer, the light of every human being. He's the true philosophy. He's the true person. He's the one in whom everything comes together. That's what the early Christians saw. That's what they held up. That's what they celebrated at all times, and especially the celebration of the nativity of our Lord. And yet, not everybody accepts that. That's the problem. We can see that the light shines, and the light is actually holding people up. He's revealed himself in the creation. But many people even deny the one who's created and sustains and holds their very breath in his hand. And then when he came into this world as a man, it was somewhat of a stumbling block because it is hard to think about how can God become man. And it's, it's an amazing mystery. It's not a contradiction, but it's a mystery beyond our comprehensions, beyond what we can put together. We believe it as an article of faith because we've re- it, God has revealed it and has shown it to be true. And yet, what this word has come into this world to do is to connect with people. To say, I want to connect with you to bring you to the highest glory. And so what he's come into this world to do is to offer himself as a gift to every human being in this world. And to say, anyone who accepts that gift, who says, I want to have a relationship with Jesus, can have that relationship and be changed and transformed and have the right to become the children of God. Restored to the glory of the sons of God. And that's what's open to each one of you. And if you're here and you don't have that relationship with Jesus, he offers it to you. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, however corrupt you may have been, however many times you've failed, however much shame you feel, you can come to him. And he says, I want to build a relationship with you that's as intimate as your very creator of your soul who sustains your life in his hands. And yet, many people still do not accept him. So how is it that people are made to accept him? Well, they need to be, they need a new birth. That's what he describes in verse 13. He says, They are children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a, husband, or a husband's will, but they're born of God. And so what we see once again is, how do we have hope that God will, that people will accept the truth about Jesus? Well, God is working. And God is bringing people to him. And some may reject him, but the Lord will bring people to himself. When we work, we're already working. We're working where God himself is already working to bring people to himself infallibly and forever. One example of that from the ancient world is someone who no doubt thought a lot about the concept of the Logos. His name was Justin. And he studied philosophy in all these schools. But he could not find that which satisfied his soul. And then in his travels, he met a Christian from Syria. 
And what he told them is, you need to look beyond the philosophers and you need to listen to the prophets. And he showed them the prophets in the, in the scriptures, the Old and New Testament, who led him to Jesus. And in Jesus, he found that this was the one he was looking for, the one, the logos, the one who would satisfy his soul. And so what he did is he began to rethink everything in light of the teachings of the prophets who all point to the word, the logos. And he actually went to Rome and he set up one of those philosophy schools there to teach about Jesus. And you can actually read the things he taught or something like he taught in the works that have come down to us. He made address an address to the emperor. He also wrote a, a discussion he had uh, or some may have had or, or been a series of discussions with, the, with a Jew about whether or not Jesus was the Christ. So you can actually go back and see what he was teaching in those schools. So it's amazing, uh, 1,800 years later. But eventually, as he taught this, he got into trouble. He was commanded to sacrifice to idols, and he refused. And he was willing to do that because he, and because he recognized, he believed that the only true God was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he was willing to do it even though they threatened him with death because he believed that if he died here, he would be raised to eternal life and one day enjoy the resurrection. And that is what happened. For that truth in Jesus, he was killed. And that's why we know him today as Justin Martyr. It's not his last name, but a title of what he did. He witnessed to the truth of the Logos. But yeah, he wasn't the only one. There's a beautiful book that was written by a man named Athanasius from Alexandria, Egypt, in the 4th century, called The Incarnation of the Word. That is, the Word becoming flesh. And what he had seen in his day is that so many... He had seen all these pagan temples being overturned, being overthrown, and people embracing Jesus everywhere. And so he describes, he says, what would explain this? Listen, and to sum the matter up, behold how the Savior's doctrine is everywhere increasing. While all idolatry and everything opposed to the faith of Christ is daily dwindling and losing power and failing. For as when the sun is come, Darkness no longer prevails, but if any be still left anywhere, it is driven away. So now that the divine appearing of the word of God has come, the darkness of the idols prevails no more, and all parts of the world in every direction are illumined by his teaching. And indeed, that's what's been happening ever since. You know, we we look at our own country sometimes and we get somewhat discouraged because we may not see the, some of the ideas of the Bible prevail in the same way that they might have done so in the past. We see you know, churches closing or churches actually turning to apostasy and rejecting the, the, the old faith. But it's a really narrow view because what's actually happening today is that people all over the world are, are embracing the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere all over the world at a level that we've never seen in the history of the world. Going to places where the gospel had never gone before. And it's, what's interesting is as people come from all over the world to settle in Western countries, what ends up happening is churches that were closed reopen. 
because people are coming who are believers from, from countries that are outside of the West. Remember, um, David Frank said when he first went to Spain 40 years ago, it was like less than uh, half of a percent of people were evangelical Christian. And why is that? And then he says, but now it's more like 2%. And why is it, what has happened? Well, it hasn't been conversion of the Spanish people that much. It's actually that people from Latin America have come to Spain and they've increased the number of Christians there because that's where the gospel is growing. And as they come back, they're, they're coming back, coming to the West with their faith and even sending missionaries here. And so this is what's really happening in our life. We need to see the reality. It's almost like Satan is trying to hide from our eyes the way the word is shining in the world and that we have the possibility and opportunity to be a part of it. And once we see that, we have to ask ourselves, why are we so discouraged to talk to people about it? Why, why are we so afraid? All over the world, people are embracing it. And I have to admit, if we had to depend on our own power to convince people, then we might be discouraged. But what we see is that this is evidence that God himself is working. And that when we work, we join in what he's already doing. And that when we show forth the light, it's because the light is already shining. And we're just joining in what God is already doing. And so with that, we should have the confidence to make known and let the light shine so that all people can see and so that the darkness can be dispelled and the word can be seen for the light that he really is. Thus may it be. Amen.